You're listening to Everyday Evidence, presented by the American Occupational Therapy Association, helping the occupational therapy practitioner apply evidence to practice. Here's your host, Matt Brandenburg. Today, I am joined by Dr. Craig Veloso. Craig is the Division Director of Occupational Therapy in the College of Health Professions at the Medical University of South Carolina. He gave the Eleanor Clark Slagle Lecture at AOTA Inspire titled, Using Measurement to Highlight OT's Distinct Value. Craig, your research has been funded and recognized by the National Institutes of Health, the American Occupational Therapy Association, and AOTF. You've contributed to the science of treating brain injury, measurement theory, and the creation of many freely available measurement and professional resources. We're so excited to be speaking with with you today and want to thank you for joining us. Well, thanks, Matt. It's uh, really wonderful being here. We want to invite our listeners as well to watch the recording of the Slagle Lecture, which can be found on AOTA.org and is available through June as part of Inspire and will also be published in AJOT at a future date. Um, I think there really is a lot the listeners and I can learn from our conversation today about using measurement. Um, So let's go ahead and and dive right into it, Craig. How did you first become interested in studying measurement? Yeah, I'm... um... My background's uh, a little bit unusual in regards to occupational therapy. I, I'm, I'm actually, uh, I was finishing off my PhD in experimental psychology, and I decided to go to OT school. I was at Ohio University, and was, uh, I actually had followed my advisor, who was uh, recruited to um, Washington University Medical School's occupational therapy uh, program, and um, so I decided to become an occupational therapist um, with the intent of wanting to do uh, research uh, in the area. And that, so my backgrounds, I, I'm really, I'm an experimental psychologist and I really like methodology and things of that nature. So that tells you where my frame is of, of certain terms of where I come from. What happened was in terms of this particular kind of measurement, this uh, Called item response theory and Roche measurement. I was at uh, I was a faculty member at University of Illinois at Chicago uh, with uh, Gary Kielhofner was my the chairperson and um, Ann Fisher, a very prominent researcher in OT, was there and she was attending these presentations at the uh, University of Chicago and um, this person there uh, Benjamin Wright was there and um, he was an kind of an old codger and was lecturing on um, this, these measurement ideas and Rosh measurement. So we were sitting in these classrooms and it's very, um, a character kind of an, if you thought of a, about the, the classic old professor, older professor, you know, lecturing in the halls of University of Chicago. So he would, he was, he was basically challenging everything that we thought about in regards to measurement that we've known about reliability and validity. And he was telling us about this Roche measurement and item response theory stuff. You know, as you were listening to him, it's things started to click. Then a lot of us actually, we were very fortunate in that, uh, that period of time uh, in the Chicago area, those whole groups of us that were getting involved in this Roche measurement uh, work. Uh, and um, a number of people who have become very prominent researchers, uh, Alan Heineman at um, Rehab Institute of Chicago, David Sella, who developed the, the promise measures, uh, which are the NI, uh, 
patient report outcome measurement system, which is a $80 million investment by NIH in terms of using item response theory. So we were all in these classrooms together and learning about this. Um, another very famous person, um, Carl Granger, who de developed the FIM, the Functional Independence Measure. We were all sitting in this classroom and learning about this and all of us sort of branched out to sort of, you know, carry on with this, um, with this work. That sounds fascinating. A, a new way of looking at and, and understanding measurement. Um, it makes me think about my experience in OT school and kind of learning to think like an occupational therapist and, and changing the way I view the world and view disability and accessibility and performance and engagement. Um, and, and I think there's a lot of value that um, changing the way we look at and understand measurement can bring to occupational therapy practice. Um, and, and I want to ask you, Craig, what evidence have you generated or found that emphasizes the importance of using measurement to highlight OT's distinct value? Um, it's, a, it's a very different way of looking at measurement. What it does, which, which I think is the exciting part of it, it, it basically reduces all of measurement uh, to the person versus the item, the person versus the task. It's me against the question, uh, what is two plus two? It's me against the calculus question. It's the person against walking upstairs. It's the person against uh, dressing themselves. So this is what we deal with every day in practice. Um, it's always your client being challenged by something. And we actually put people in those challenges, which kind of puts them in an uncomfortable situation. So I think it's important that we, you know, take advantage of it. And so when you put a person, a person against an item or against an activity, you then can figure out what their ability is, depending on the challenge of the activity. It's as it's kind of as simple as that. So if you take somebody like myself, who happens to be not very, not in very good shape, then you ask me, you know, to run five miles, it's not going to happen. Because <laughs> it's too challenging. But if you ask me to walk a block, I have no problem doing that. So it's but and and so by looking at that, comparing, and once you get the activity at the same level as the person, then you can figure out what the ability level of that person is. So um, you know, in in OT, you know, we will, we put our 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 clients against uh, challenges, and um, they'll meet those, hopefully they can meet those challenges and they're right at that level. And then the question, the issue is, is can we, it's, the, that happens to be the just right challenge. So can we now just increase it a little bit so that we can get them improve their ability a little bit more? So graded activities. So taking somebody at that just right challenge and giving them a little bit more challenge. And so, you know, the measurement work fits very well with the intervention concept of, how we typically intervene with adults, with children. You know, we OTs take people right at their level and we don't care about what they can and can't do. We care about what they can do <laughs> or in the future. And so it's like, well, where can we move you from where you're at? So, so this technique works very well in terms of thinking about things like that. 
Absolutely. I love that explanation as well. And finding the the just right challenge for uh, people that we are working with as therapists um, and, and therapy assistants. I know when personally I hear the term measurement, I automatically think of assessments and trying to use assessments to determine strengths and, and challenges of um, a client that we have. I think most practitioners are familiar with and use assessment very often in practice. How would you say measurement is different than assessment? Yeah, that's, I think it's an important issue. And I think it's where we sort of get confused at times. Um, as I presented in the Slagle lecture, a sense assessment is really a qualitative experience. It's looking at the client from you know, maybe on your testing instrument, your assessment instrument, but also looking at the client from every angle that you can look at them and trying to sort of understand them from reading the chart to watching them perform, to listening to what their narrative is about their, their life. All of that helps you to assess somebody. Measurement's simpler than that. It just tells you whether you have more or less of something. And while assessment is multidimensional, um, measurement is unidimensional. You only want to know, are you, do you have more or less of something? Um, so it's, it, I think it's a big difference. And I think it, it, people get confused. Uh, some people think that, oh, well, we can only learn things through numbers. Well, that's a silly concept. You know, probably you learn more from the qualitative experience of something. But the numbers are important in terms of trying to quantify and trying to determine, do we have more? Is there improvement? Is there deterioration? You know, you really do need numbers to, to get to those kinds of conclusions. So each has its role. Uh, what I'm trying to show is, uh, well, maybe we can make the numbers a little bit more meaningful to people so that they will actually use them in daily practice. Absolutely. That sounds very uh, appealing to, to me as a, a young therapist about to start um, my practice um, and I think can be beneficial to, to any practitioner. Um, I, I love how included in your lecture you have a call to change practice. And, and I want to touch on some of these recommendations that you give to practitioners. Um, but first, I think it's important we discuss measurement theory and some of the research that supports your recommendations uh, to really, I guess, help us all understand uh, more how these recommendations can be put into practice. Um, so to start off right off the bat, um, what, what is measurement theory? Well, there's, there's, there's a couple of, of theories. And one of the, the major measurement theory, which is called uh, classical test theory, is that when you measure somebody, you get their true score of the person, or you hope to get their true score, and then there's error. Um, so whenever I'm, I'm evaluating you in terms of your, your ability to get around your house or your ability to complete a hobby or something of that nature, I would really like to get to the true score, what, you really, what your real ability is, but there's always error associated with it. That's called classical test theory. Um, item response theory is really based on the person versus the item. So... There's also error involved, but it's more of looking at this relationship of, okay, when a person takes an assessment or does an assessment, how do they do? Do they pass? Do they fail? What is the probability that they're going to pass or they're going to fail? So this um, the measurement theory um, is 
item, item response theory. So we're focused on the items, not on the test. Classical test theory focuses on the entire score of the test. Here we focus on the items. It's called item response theory. And a particular type of item response theory that uh, some of us use is, uh, it's called Roche measurement. It's kind of, it's the simplest of the, um, the item response theory measurement theories. Um, it just really deals with the person versus the item. And I love this uh, way of looking at, at measurement. It seems like it can really help you to identify and focus more on contextual factors and, and other factors that are influencing someone's performance um, instead of getting tied down by, you know, that true score and, and error score um, of, a, of a classical test theory. Yeah, I think what, what's happened is, unfortunately, it's like I say to people, we've all learned classical test theory, even though we probably don't know that it's classical test theory, but we learn about reliability, we all learn about validity. But the question I say is that, well, what does that, when you get those, when, when somebody tells you that an instrument is reliable or an instrument is valid, well, what does that tell you? Well, that tells you about the quality of that instrument. You know, does it reach a certain level of reliability or a certain level of validity? But then I say, well, what does that do for you in daily practice? Does that make you change the decision you have on your patient? You know, in classical test theory, you test somebody and you find out that, oh, they're below the norm. Well, the reason the person is there seeing you or the child is there seeing you is because they're below the norm. So it's kind of silly that you'd have to go and have to test that. Right. And like you really have to, you know, prove to anybody that the person, the child is functioning below, below the typical child. Well, w why not just deal with the child at their ability level and, and not care about whether they're above or below a norm? It's like all I care about is you and what you, where you're at and where you want to be or where your family would like you to be. You know, so it's a different, it's a really different uh, frame of thinking uh, than um, classical test theory. And I think, I think hopefully we can make it valuable to OTs and to rehabilitation professionals in terms of helping them to see what's, what's the just right challenge for somebody and help them set goals um, and things like that. Absolutely. You're, you're touching on a great point. I think sometimes the documentation and attention that comes with implementing standardized assessments and comparing to norms can really be seen as a, a burden or maybe extra work that may not always help practitioners to implement effective and client-centered intervention. What can practitioners do to optimize using measurement to implement effective interventions? Well, I, I, I tried, you know, when I gave the presentation, the Slago presentation, thought, you know, like a, a lot of presentations that you can do, you can tell people about this new innovative way of looking at things and, and then, you know, inspire people and then, you know, close, close the presentation. But I, I felt that, well, if I'm going to tell you about it, I, I've got to give you a way to do it, um, a, a way to use it. And so we've... Um, you know, I, I've created a, a, a website called patientprogress.org because what's necessary to do this measurement is to have these, these instruments in this structure. You know, you give your instrument in, a, in an assessment order, but the question is, is what, what's the order of difficulty of the items of the instrument? And so um, a lot of this uh, data is, is published um, and or, sub, or I analyze it myself and, and get this 
what we call item difficulty hierarchy, and then order the items in this difficulty order. So I'm trying to accumulate, accumulate as many tests as I can to provide them in this format. So people can go to this website and it's all free. I'm not making any money on it. And they um, can go to these, uh, these uh, key form recovery maps. And hopefully one of the instruments that they're interested in they can, uh, is there. And when they click on it, they can download the instrument. They can download it as a PDF, which shows the items in their order of difficulty. Or you can download it as an Excel spreadsheet. And in that case, um, it allows you to put your to run your test as you would normally run your test. And then when you look at the second worksheet, it will put the items in a, in a hierarchical order and it color codes the items, uh, the, the ratings on the items. The items that are challenging, which are usually be on the top, are coded in red. Uh, the items that uh, are um, that are easy for the person that they can accomplish, those are colored in green and it's it's all automatically colored when you put the scores in there and then there's this transition zone which usually goes from green to yellow or or from yellow to red that's where the person's just right challenges so um, that will allow people to sort of put the scores of their client in and uh, get this output and then see where the just right challenges uh, for that uh, for that individual uh, actually have empirical evidence for that uh, that's amazing. And it's so awesome that you're providing these key recovery or key form recovery maps um, for free uh, for, for practitioners to begin to use um, and, and hopefully enhance treatment and, and the way measurement is used in practice. We'll get back to our interview right after this quick message. You all know we really try to make research more consumable and applicable on everyday evidence. But did you know that just one minute of your time could help us to improve the show, improve the resources the American Occupational Therapy Association provides for practitioners, and improve the application of evidence to practice within our whole field? Please take our one-minute survey. It's only three questions, and you can find the link in this and every episode's description. And support the AOTA in continued efforts to improve our podcasts and to improve the translation of research to practice. Now back to the interview. I, I want to touch more on these key form recovery maps, um, but I, I think there's so much to, to really unravel here and, and share with all of our listeners. Um, and, I, and I wanted to mention one example you gave in the Slagle lecture, um, which was about norms, how you illustrated how identifying norms doesn't actually help solve a problem that someone is facing, like you mentioned. Um, but the example you gave specifically was how knowing the norms of table height doesn't assist you in fixing a broken table. Um, and you highlight the importance of shifting focus on an assessment's reliability, validity, and norms to focusing on the person, like we've, we've discussed. How can a practitioner begin to do this every day in their practice? And what would you say to a practitioner where maybe implementing assessment and measurement in that way doesn't match exactly what their employer's procedures are currently? Yeah, well, let's deal with the, the situation where it doesn't match what your employer does. So, for example, in, um, in pediatrics, um, you have to establish that your child is below the norm. Um, and so, you know, you have standardized assessments and you can get those scores in to um, provide an argument for services and payment for services. So if people want things and your company wants things, that's fine. You know, do it. You know, that would be silly not to do that. You want to get paid. So I'm not saying that, you know, you forego all of that stuff. Get paid first. 
Um, but then, then it's the issue of is that, well, we can take that same instrument and, and we can put it into this structure uh, so that you can now look at, you know, uh, you know what your chi- the child can do and what the child cannot do is having challenges with and find their just right challenge. This um, measurement theory is, uh, is controversial. Uh, and I think it's controversial or has been controversial certainly in the past because people were so used to doing things their the original way in classical test methods. So then we approach this. And I remember one researcher saying to me, so, well, you know, what if my instrument doesn't have this item hierarchy? And I go, it has to have an item hierarchy. Um, it, it's mathematically, that's how the numbers get generated. Uh, now, it might not have an, an item hierarchy that makes sense. That's a problem then. So you can't, if, you, if the instrument isn't sort of structured this way conceptually, it, it uh, you, you'll get a kind of messy, a messy output. You'll get a messy key form. But, you know, in areas, for example, like in pediatrics and motor development, which clearly has a just a, a, the most beautiful of hierarchies for um, motor performance. Um, you know, an infant to roll over is an easy thing. Um, then eventually to be scooting, eventually to be, you know, taking a few steps. That hierarchy is well, well established. And I love it because when you look at this, um, uh, the, there's an, an article which shows the item hierarchy there from infants to, I think, maybe about 10 years of age. And the easiest item is like rollover. And the hardest item is hop, hop on one foot, you know? And so, well, yeah, of course, <laughs> of course, that's a hierarchy. I think sometimes we probably run and we put numbers on things that we don't really understand how they are structured. And, and that's, that's a problem. There's always been this, this uh, challenge with qualitative research and quantitative research. And, you know, the move was, well, you got to turn things into a number to make it worthwhile. Well, some things aren't ready to turn into numbers. And and I remember um, this, um, this individual, ben, uh, Benjamin Wright, who, uh, who taught this, uh, this technique, he said to me once, he said, well, if you don't know your, your item hierarchy of your, of what you're measuring, then you really don't understand what you're trying to measure. And, and I said, what, what are you talking about? Cause I hadn't even known what an item hierarchy, difficulty hierarchy was, but, but it, it made sense. You know, sometimes we put numbers on things and they don't necessarily have a, have a structure. And so therefore the, the numbers ends up, end up being meaningless. But once you have a structure, the numbers start to have meaning. Um, I, I, I think I have a really great example. Uh, there's a, a very, very famous scale. Uh, it's called the Rosenberg self-esteem scale. And, and it's, a, it's a measure of self-esteem. And there's all these items, different kinds of questions on it. We've analyzed it and we've looked at the item hierarchy and the item hierarchy doesn't make any sense that because the questions don't make a lot of sense. And, and so I say, but, but what if you wanted to measure self-esteem? I, I could, I could create an instrument to measure self-esteem. You know, I, I, and, and what Ben Wright would say, he said, well, describe the person who has the most self-esteem and describe a person that has the least self-esteem and then start creating items that, represent that. So I would say, well, you take somebody with a lot of self-esteem. Well, they get up and like you and I and talk freely, you know, get audio taped and have a great conversation. And But if you talk about somebody who has low self-esteem, they're probably going to be very shy. They're not going to make eye contact. And, and then you could think about people who have different kinds of self-esteem and you could keep building items. So you could 
create a measure of self-esteem that could have a beautiful hierarchy. And then the numbers would really have some meaning. So if a person was like, if it was a hundred point scale and the person was 50, well, you know, that person is, you know, probably, you know, feeling pretty good about themselves, but maybe not terrific about themselves in terms of self-esteem. So this will actually get us to think about our instruments a little differently and in terms of how we want to build them. And, and because once, once we, if we build them in, in a logical way, then the numbers will end up even having more meaning um, to them. Absolutely. That's a, an excellent example. And I, I love the importance of, of having a structure to, to help practitioners um, really implement this into, into what we do every day. And you do that as well with patientprogress.org and, and providing these key form recovery maps. Can you go a little bit more in depth on the Rosh analysis um, for us and, and how that was used to guide the creation of these key form recovery maps? You know, if, uh, if you, you know, anybody that does, uh, you know, a methodological technique like myself or, or others, you know, it, you know, we get obsessed with a lot of details and, uh, you know, we build entire careers out of just doing an analysis to do the analysis and to, and to be as obsessive as a researcher is that's uh, that's just a whole nother level. Um, but you know, it's really the, actually the analysis is, is a very, very simple analysis. I actually teach a graduate course in it and, um, it's actually, it's a, there's a, a, a program, um, that's called uh, win steps. It's a, it's a statistical program runs on, I think uh, it runs on, on, on uh, personal computers and, um, it's actually not very expensive. I think it probably costs about $200, uh, for people who would do, who want to do this kind of research. And then you, you basically put a set of commands um, um, into this, and and there's actually really only about five commands that you put in uh, to, to to run the analysis. When anybody says, "Well, hey, can you do ask me to do Rosh analysis?" My first question I have to ask them is, "Do you have your test or your assessment scored at the item level?" Which means I need to have need to know what rating each item has for a person. So if you came to me and you said, "Hey, Craig, I got a, you know, I've got total scores on the Beck Depression Inventory or, you know, the um, the Stroke Impact Scale," I'd go, "Well, I, sorry, I can't analyze it. I need to know what you had at the item level. So I need that data. So once I have the data in that format, basically, then we run it into in this WinSteps program, the Winste- and and we just kind of, kind of create a kind of a matrix. So you put your first patient. Uh, and then you put the data going across from, you know, item one to who says there's like 17 items and you put the score of each item going across and then you just list your, all your patients down. And then um, you basically put about five commands beforehand uh, in the software program. And basically then it runs this, this analysis. Now the analysis just has a lot of outputs um, in it, but the one output that I'm, that I look for in regards to the key form recovery map, we look at a thing called item calibrations. It basically tells you the, the challenge of an item. And basically that's who, when you start giving all these items across all of these people and you do it over and over again, a pattern starts to emerge. So for example, if you, if on a, on a, um, uh, an ADL scale, activities of daily living scale, and there's been, there's, you know, hundreds and hundreds of ADL scales, virtually every ADL scale that you'll see, you'll see that the, the eating item is the easiest item on the instrument. And usually standing and bathing and walking upstairs are the hardest items. That 
pattern exists over and over and over again, no matter who you test, you know, that that still is the easiest and that that ends up being the most challenging um, item. So if that pattern continues to exist across the, the data that you have, then it forms, you, we can start to figure out, well, what's, what's the challenge? What is the difficulty level of the item calibration for eating? What's the item calibration for grooming? What's the item calibration for walking upstairs? So you get those numbers. And um, actually, those numbers get published by a lot of people. So often, I don't even have to do the analysis. I just find an article that has the assessment in it and has done this done this analysis. And I look at a table and I, I get the item calibrations out of it. And then we, we uh, through um, Dr. Uh, Scott Hutchinson and Dr. Michelle Woodbury, developed a way to uh, put these in a spreadsheet and to order them. And so they can kind of color code when you put the scores in. That's it, basically from beginning to end. And of course, it takes a lot of a lot of stuff to do the analysis. So Absolutely. It sounds like it requires definitely a foundational statistical knowledge and understanding um, and, and some expert um, understanding of analysis and, and the steps needed to the, to take there. Um, but it's wonderful that you've been able to do that and, and provide kind of the, the finished, easy to consume product in these key form recovery maps that are color coded. Um, and, and it really seems that in all of this, your take home message isn't that we need to change the way assessment and measurement is conducted, but we need to change what the focus and purpose of assessment and measurement is on and how scores don't mean anything unless they're tied to a person's function. I think that was, I'm quoting you from your Slagle lecture. And and these key form recovery maps are an excellent way to do that. Could you maybe share an example of how a practitioner could use this uh, color-coded recovery map when working with a client? Well, a lot of, uh, I've had, uh, you know, one of the instruments that's very, uh, uh, that's that's actually structured by, uh, uh, was uh, Steve Haley and Wendy Costner uh, developed the, the PD. It's a pediatric evaluation. That's all structured on the basis of item response theory. And um, so um, I had a student, one of my post-professional uh, students who used this, created these key forms. And uh, so uh, created actually separate columns so that you could show that, well, you, t- you test your child out and, and it would you know create this color-coded um, distribution. And then when you test them the week, a week later or two weeks later, you can watch the pattern stair step up as the child improves. So the area that's green, which a child can do, starts increasing in its size and, and starts moving up. And then the yellow area starts also kind of moving up and the red area starts decreasing. And so you could actually demonstrate very clearly uh, to somebody that, you know, improvements are being made. And and not only by just saying, hey, well, look, the number is improving, but you can say, look, at this point, this is all the person, all the child is doing this, but now, look, they can do this. The, the demonstration is actually going to show people concretely where the child or where the adult is moving um, in terms of the progression of their their treatment. I think we have a real advantage here. And the, the one message is that there are thousands and thousands of articles per year on using uh, item response theory and ROSH measurement, but very few people use it in this way. And this is the secret sauce. This, this is how one uses measurement to actually make decisions on clients uh, or to help you make decisions on clients. 
or to demonstrate that things are changing in your client. I really implore us as the profession to be the leaders in terms of doing this. Um, others are going to do it and we can be the first and we can sort of demonstrate across the professions that, hey, this is a, this is a, a, a logical way to start using measurement in terms of demonstrating improvement um, in your client. So that's why I'm, I, I saw the thought. I said, well, well, maybe the way we can get people to do it is, um, you know, by giving them, you know, providing these assessments uh, and these key forms freely to them. That might do it. But I think it's going to take more than that. And, and so I got a group that I'm working with right now is we're trying to figure out how do we promote this? How do we get people to do this? And so, you know, do we do it through, uh, do it in the educational system? Do we start training our students in terms of how to use this technique so it becomes natural to them? Do we do it? Do we go to clinicians and we have seminars and teaching clinicians how to do it? Or do we go to administrators and we show the value to administrators? Who is the group? And we'll try to attack it in different ways to try to say, try to keep promoting this. I, I, I've spent a lot of years doing this and I'm confident it is not going to solve all of our problems. But I'm sure it's where it's in the right direction. And I'm going to really push to see if we can get, um, I can work with clinicians so we can find the best way to make this, um, you know, useful to, useful to clinicians and used in practice. And that we as OTs get to be known for sort of leading this mission. Absolutely. It sounds like such a, a worthwhile goal and, and something that can, you know, not just help our profession to grow, but help the overall health of all the clients that, that we work with um, and the, the population of the world in general, which is an amazing thing. Um, having this conversation with you and, and thinking more about this topic, I know clinical reasoning is an area where OT practitioners really excel in the way that we view clients' progress and, and design intervention. And this almost seems like a way to kind of demonstrate to others what our clinical reasoning is based on and and how we're looking at the client in you know that special ot lens way so it, it definitely resonates with me and i think can be very beneficial to to everyone yeah so well uh you know we continue to you know we want feedback uh you know in regards to what we're doing and how we're approaching it and uh you know we want to you know work with um work with therapists work with students uh work with administrators to figure out how to make this useful. And uh, I mean, if it's not useful, well, I guess we'll figure that out also, but sort of try to bet on it and try to make it happen. Absolutely. And say I'm a, I'm a practitioner and I go to patientprogress.org and I'm looking at some of the posts there and, and some of the key form recovery maps. And I want to start using this more in my practice, or I want to collaborate with you and um, maybe some of your, your colleagues there. What, what's really a next step for a practitioner when they visit patientprogress.org? Well, there's a, uh, an email function on that. On the, I think the last to, to contact us. We're more than happy to help you out in terms of using it or more than happy to take suggestions. Uh, we'd actually like suggestions on what other instruments people would like to see up there. So, you know, I can, we can try to build these on, on, on different instruments, but tell me the instrument that that's your favorite instrument. And, uh, you know, send us a little, you know, go to that site or you can go to my, go, just send me an email and, um, uh, my it's Veloso, my last name at, um, med, M U S C medical university of South Carolina dot edu. 
and just send us send me a note and um you know we'll uh, try to get on um uh helping you out and us thinking about it awesome thank you so much craig i just have a couple more questions for you um what else would you recommend to a practitioner um who wants to improve the way they use measurement to highlight their value I don't think that you have to, you know, measure everything. I think you should be kind of sure about the things that you're measuring. Be confident in terms of make sure it's a, a phenomenon that, you, you know, an, an area that you really understand well and, you know, and that you can really have seen, you know, children or, or adults improve in and then choose choose a measure, you know, in that area. You know, you don't want to get overwhelmed with too many measures. <laughs> it's going to take up your time. Uh, measurement is supposed to be it's supposed to be a quick thing. If I ask you to a, a wheelchair can fit through a doorway, you quickly get a ruler and you quickly get to the point of measurement and you tell me whether it goes through or not. You don't do an elaborate process of telling me all about the wheelchair and telling me all about the doorway. That's not necessary. So measurement should be that same way. It should be quick. It's been shown basically that while we do these elaborate assessments, in terms of measurement, you actually don't need a lot of items to, to measure something. It actually has been shown by uh, the Promise group that they can probably get a pretty good measure of, of people with, um, with about four items. But th- that's where people have to make a distinction between assessment and measurement. And to me, if you're doing assessment, do assessment, do good assessment, do good, good qualitative assessment. But if you're doing measurement, also do good, quick measurement. Don't. It isn't that you have to ask all of the questions of on on a particular assessment. And maybe we, they'll eventually it'll be in a computer adapted format so that it'll start directing questions to people that are at their ability level, and then you'll be able to get done quickly. I think it's going to take a lot of change in our perspective to to get to that point. You know that we're going to be comfortable with. You know, not doing, you know, all all the items on our ADL assessment or all the items on our balance assessment because we go, well, but I really need to know if the person can do or can't do that. But from a measurement perspective, you're not going to need many items and you should be able to get to that point real quickly and then make decisions. I think really what you want to do is you want to measure just like you do with anything in building something, right? It's not like, wow, I, you want to be, you're so fascinated with measuring the, the objects to build your house is that you focus on the measurement. No, you go forward and build your house. And sort of like, it's like, go forward and treat your patients and treat your clients. Just measure to get there. You know, just measure to help you to make decisions or set goals and also use it to prove to people to say, hey, look, I'm not making this up. This is what the person can and can't do. And usually when we sh- you show those pictures, it's, it's kind of undeniable. You know, it's not like people go, wow, I got to really figure this out. No, it kind of makes sense that the child can really do that. And, oh, yeah, of course they can do that. And, oh, of course they can't do that. Oh, now I see the picture. So we hope that people can use this to maybe even convince insurance companies to say, look, we need more time with this person because here's where they're at. And this is where I anticipate that they're going to be. Uh, I think measurement can be used in in that way um, to help us out. So, don't go crazy about measuring. Just use it to get to do what you really should be doing, and that's treating patients. Absolutely. I think that really highlights the value of integrating measurement into the OT process. Really, really like that perspective on it. 
Um, Craig, what additional resources would you recommend to listeners who maybe want to learn more about measurement? Um, yeah, well, you know, I mean, I don't know how it is for you, but it seems as though I can, I, I don't think I have to go to school anymore. You can learn everything on YouTube. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's pretty incredible. Uh, you know, the, the resources on YouTube are just phenomenal, uh, you know, across the board, almost on, in, in almost any area. Of course, you want to be, you know, someplace that's, um, is meaningful. But um, I think what, you know, if you, if you look up, um, you know, item response theory and look up uh, Rosh measurement uh, on YouTube, uh, there's excellent, excellent uh, videos that people have sort of created, uh, you know, describing it. If you want to, you know, get to understand it better, there's even ways to teach you how to actually do the analysis uh, online. So, you know, I think you go with those kinds of ways. You kind of, you know, feel your way through, the, the videos in terms of to get a feel for, you know, what this is, you know, what this is about, you know, hopefully we'll be, you know, trying to keep things published and my students and past students will keep publishing things uh, that will be um, useful to people, uh, useful to, you know, to therapists out there in terms of try to sort of understanding this. And um, the ideal is that it gets to be second nature that we start doing this stuff and we go, Oh, well, this is how it always should have been done. That, of course, will probably be a long way off. We'll keep um, pushing for it. Absolutely. I love those uh, recommendations. And uh, just another reminder that uh, the Eleanor Clark Slagle lecture is available on AOTA.org and will be published in AJOT as well. Um, so our listeners can keep an eye out there. Uh, Craig, it's time for the golden nugget segment of our show now. And it's, it's our last question as well. If you could share one piece of knowledge or one recommendation with practitioners, what would you say? You know, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna actually not talk about measurement, but talk about sort of from a career perspective. Hang around good people. It's it, we're very very fortunate. You know, try to try to recognize you know the people that are that motivate you, that uh, inspire you, and spend as much time with them as you can. Don't waste your time with people that aren't excited about moving ahead. Spend time with the people who really want to and get excited. You'll have a, a really fulfilling, exciting career. That's a, a wonderful nugget, Craig. Uh, thank you so much for sharing that and uh, for sharing all your knowledge uh, and expertise on, on this episode. I truly appreciate your time. It's been a, a pleasure speaking with you. Well, Matt, it was great. Thank you for, thank you for giving me this opportunity. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to Everyday Evidence. Tune in next time for more evidence-based practice insights and applications.